and welcome to Gatsby Fridays, a show about getting the best out of a creative life from two creative directors working around the world and based in New York City. I'm your host, Alex Chamilio. And I'm Sarah Semi. And today we'll be talking about race and creative professions. We'll talk about representation, diversity in creative offices, allies, and how we take on making a positive impact. And at the end of each episode, we make a signature cocktail. Cheers to you. So hang with us as we discuss race and the creative profession. I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm Alex. And And this this is Gatsby Gatsby Fridays. Alex, this is going to be an important episode and one that's timely. In light of all that's happening in the world with the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movement, protests have touched every aspect of life from discussions of systemic reform to questioning the legacy of the nation's historical institutions. Yes. But first, let's start with a check-in. How are you doing and what are you wearing? I am feeling good. It's warm outside, hot. It reminds me of the movie Do the Right Thing. The heat in that movie played such a main character, even though you didn't see you didn't see its presence, you felt it. It feels like that today. It feels like the character in the movie was also an antagonist. I am wearing a floral printed shirt made out of like a cotton silky blend. Breezy. Breezy, very comfortable. White jeans, stretchy, of course. Always need to have some lycra in it. And some tan sneakers. Also, I've been carrying my backpack, which feels like I've been just carrying my office all day with me. I know what you mean. Carrying my office, our recording studio, my dog, 10 pounds. Yeah. Everything on my back, on the subway, in the heat of the city. Sarah, how are you doing? What are you wearing? I'm energized and exhausted at the same time. As every other creative on the planet, I'm juggling client work and this podcast, personal projects, and it's exhausting. Yes. But at the same time, working on this podcast, which has been such a long time coming for us, gave me so much energy and a sense of purpose, in turn, makes me do better client work because I feel so much more energized and inspired. I'm wearing light pink summer denim, which is super stretchy and comfortable with a linen tank top, white sneakers, and it is designed to make it comfortable for me for a long day work. Awesome. Since we work in the creative space, we're going to focus on how the current events relate to a creative career. So for you, how has your race dictated the course of your career from early on to where you are now? What I want to do is acknowledge that race at times has dictated how people see me. It's not who I am. It's what I look like. I would say that early on in my career, there hasn't been this type of reckoning and acknowledgement on how deep systemic racism is pervasive in the creative industry. When I was a young kid growing up in Brooklyn, living in a neighborhood that was predominantly Latinx, my mom, an immigrant from Honduras, raised my siblings and me as a single parent. She made sure that we understood that education was important and wanted us to acclimate. And what I mean by acclimation is making sure that we spoke English instead of Spanish, predominantly American-sounding names. Do you have a Spanish name? Yes, I do. Edgardo. Edgar in Spanish. Are you kidding me? Yes. 19 years later, I find out you have a middle (laughs) Spanish name? Oh, my God. Yes. You know, she, she wanted to make sure that education was important and wanted us to stay connected to our Latin roots. My perspective on the whole thing of my race dictating the course of my career is a little bit different in the context of what's going on in the society, the Black Lives Matter movement, with who I am and how I identify. What do you mean by that? My experience has led me to see color different. 
a reference to slavery in America that your personal family history doesn't have that exactly in your story yeah and that's the thing because I am black looking and that's pretty much it that is the whole story about of who I am here disassociated with myself but I don't see myself that way and I've just moved through life very differently because of that and it's not to say that I don't identify what's going on and what the movement is because I do experience all the hardships and the challenges that black African-Americans experience in this country. But at the same time, I was born here. And you grew up in Brooklyn in a black and Latin community. Yes. So the only thing that differentiates you is your family's heritage of not coming from the South and the roots of slavery in the U.S. Exactly. history. But it still, at the end of the day, impacts your day-to-day life. Absolutely. When I walk into a room, I I have to gauge a room. I have to gauge how many people look like me and what my chances are of being noticed and my ideas being taken seriously. So Sarah, what has been your experience like? Well, you and I have been having these conversations for a long time now, and it has helped me to figure out a lot of what I have to say and where I belong uh, in this space. Also, to reiterate your point about the current state of the world's understanding and the call to action is only recent. Even though the inequalities have always been there, we weren't really called to pay attention and be vocal about it till now. Um, So when we were younger, we just lived and dealt with it. Your and my experience are different upon reflection. Back then, the world didn't call us to pay attention. That's why it's important for us to do our second episode, I think, on this subject and uh, rise up to address that all we have known all along now we have something to say about it. Um, My real life experience with race started when I arrived in the US for college. And I was 18 at the time. Before that, I grew up in Istanbul and my exposure to race has been uh, mostly media, books and movies. And um, we read James Baldwin in high school. I understood what it was talking about, but I didn't really understand that it is still a daily experience and daily reality for some people. For me, at that young age, understanding that if it was published, if we're acknowledging that this was wrong, that it's no longer happening. We've documented it. We move on now. We do better now. And that's really like, you know, the 16-year-old's naive understanding of it. And I didn't grow up seeing it in school around me. I mean, there's all Turkish people. So I didn't see it on the streets. I didn't see it in the mall. So until I came here, I didn't really see it. Also, my understanding of race and my racial identity took time to evolve. I didn't consider myself white American. I'm not American and I'm not considered white. But I also have lighter skin. So I don't carry being black into the rooms that I walk. I don't have that immediate response. I've never experienced the prejudice of just how I appear to other people. So I pass. From that, so learning where I belong because I'm different, but I, it, I don't carry it on the outside. It took some time to figure out where I belong. Um, I'm already an outsider. I wasn't born here. I come from a Muslim country that is not European enough for Europe, that is not Muslim enough for the Middle East. We're like stuck in between there anyway. A country that doesn't fit in. And the vocabulary around race has evolved since I've lived here. No one was talking about person of color as the correct term in 1998 when I was here at 18, which is... It's so much more inclusive to say person of color. Now I understand what I am. I am a person of color. I'm not black. I'm not Latino. I'm not Arab. I'm not Asian. When there is none of this, like, Turkish is not a race. (laughs) It's a nationality. So when you come in from a country where there's only one race and one nationality, and then you come into this American term of melting pot, then you don't belong to any of it. Then you don't know know how to address it. And at that age, like, 
like I said before, like the world wasn't calling us to pay attention as much. It was we were not a nobody was this proactively uh, standing up for themselves even. So I considered myself Mediterranean, but I think that's more of like a poetic association to a region than a racial assignment. So it doesn't carry the same social repercussions of race. So the term of people of color helped me understand where I belong. Um, When it comes to how all of this impacted my education and career, everything about my career to this day has been defined by navigating immigration, which is not a visible challenge I carry on my skin, but it is an immediate determinant of what my opportunities are, how much I get paid. But that's a whole other episode that we can get into another time. Let's move on and talk about diversity. Sarah, what did the creative spaces you worked in look like and what was the culture like? I have worked mostly in smaller companies. My exposure to corporate America is limited at best. Um, In smaller creative spaces, I wouldn't say I worked at the most diverse places ever, but I've been exposed to a good amount of it. You and I met at a branding agency, and my full four years there, over time, I was exposed to a range of backgrounds. There's me, the Turkish girl, there was the Puerto Rican-American gay designer, the female German fashion designer, um, the female Afghan-Swiss graphic designer, the Filipino-American illustrator... I've made friends with two Indian girls from two very different Indian backgrounds. Um, One of them is still my best friend to this day. I feel like there was a very eclectic group of people there. And now, now that we've grown up a little, I understand that is not the norm. That's actually very rare. But maybe the diversity experience in my first job led me thinking that's normal and that's because it's supposed to be that way, but it isn't. I didn't end up paying attention to the inequalities because I saw the diversity in a way. I think you had a unique experience there. I mean, we both were working there at the same time, and I I understand what you saw. I, when I reflect back, I see it differently. For me, all those people were identities, all different. But when I scanned the room, I truly only saw, at the most, three people who looked like me. Um, The accountant the receptionist and myself and not to say I mean, it was a great place I, I met you which was wonderful and I understand what you're what you're saying but I oftentimes when I walk into creative spaces I am usually either one or one of very few people people of color or people who look like me in these spaces and I often wonder why that is right now We're going to take a break, and when we get back, we'll talk about allies and how we take on making a positive impact. This is Gatsby Fridays. Hello, and welcome back to Gatsby Fridays. Alex, let's talk about being an ally and making a positive impact. What would your advice be for a young creative person of color entering the creative profession? I'm not going to deny that there is a glass ceiling. If you believe in what the corporate structure has to offer you, I didn't let someone's title or position deter me. I created my own path and companies making my way up to creative director. What advice I can give or what words that I could offer of, of help oftentimes came to me with the books that I read, the movies I watched, the articles I've, I've read myself. One book in particular that really spoke to me was ta Coates' Between the World and Me. Uh, it's written as a letter, the book is written as a letter to his soon-to-be-born son. 
and just explaining what it is to be African-American in this country and how to navigate yourself through these challenging experiences. And it resonated with me because I have a son who is of mixed race. I want to offer him and make sure that he has advice that instills value to his own life and instills value in others and instills strength inclusionness that know that he knows that whatever space that he occupies is the space that he should always be in i would also like to suggest an article by james whitner on highsnobiety.com the article is how to tackle the lack of corporate diversity in fashion and streetwear and sneaker culture and james uh, a black man talks about the trials and tribulations of what it took for him to get his business off the ground, being an entrepreneur, securing loans from banks, and the support networks that he found through people who look like him along the way. It's just a good article, and I feel like it's an important read for everyone. And I know that you're not into it because it's a horror movie, the movie Get Out. I live alone. I, I, I have enough fears... But it's more, it's more than just, a, there, there are horror elements to it, but it's an absurdist satire, I think, of what, it li- what it's like to be black in this country. And it's just a great movie. I think, I think when you get over your fear, you should try to watch it, but I think everyone should watch it. It's directed by Jordan Peele. I read this article. It's not an article. It's, an, it's a Facebook post. Someone reposted and, you know, it's Facebook. Is this where you get your news from? It's, it's, I know Iffy, it's not a news story. It's a VFS, but it's like when it's an uplifting story that I, I, I choose not to question the validity of it. Um, it's not a hate message. So, um, so this white woman in Florida um, gets, has a problem with her refrigerator. So the serviceman shows up and he's black and she asks him, how has the current events have affected you? And he assumes that she doesn't want to talk about the race because it's it's unspoken. He immediately talks about the virus and she says, no, no, no. How have this Black Lives Matter event and the protests have affected you? And he goes, well, you know, like I've always been struggling with this. Like they stop his van at night. He can't. And now that because of the because of the virus business has slowed down but on top of that he can't he can't go to service calls at night because you know he's a black man driving a van driving a van like it just there's all of these things and she after all of this conversation she comes to realize that he doesn't have a website so she facilitates him to get a website helps him through his business and all of this just starts by asking how is this affecting you and really asking, not just brushing, like, how are you doing? I'm good. Good. It's not just that. She really does want to understand. And she she takes that very small step to asking one person one question and improves that one person's life. And that's all it takes. I think there's value in individual stories. Everyone's experience is different. Yes, there is an overarching theme. And we understand that now. But... Not everyone's going to change, make policy changes. I'm not a political activist. But every little step. But every little step. Helps. Impacting yes. human life. Just ask one person. Just try to help one person. I think that's, that's an important message. I would also add, 
you know, if you're in a situation, you're a young creative, you're entering the industry, uh, whether it be fashion or any other creative endeavor, and you feel lost, and if you can't find people who look like you, try to find allies who align with your, for lack of a better word, ideologies, because I think there are people out there who are going to be willing to help you, and you'd be surprised where you'd find them. And it could be scary. I've gone through it myself. I've been in this industry for many years. But at the same time, I've been able to find people who were able to help me and guide me. And I really value their mentorship. And I would look for those types of people. Now, let's move on to our favorite part of this in every episode, our signature cocktail. Alex, what do you have for us today? I want to highlight a drink that sparks revolution and celebration at the same time. And to me, this was a French 75, a champagne cocktail. I heard about a French cocktail by a friend, a bartender friend of mine, Mario, who works at Winnie's Jazz Bar at the Refinery Hotel in New York City. Please go. It's really good. It's a good It's a good place. When, when Once quarantine is over and hotel bars are open, please go. I will be there if you need me. I'd meet, I would meet with my good friend Simone after work for drinks. And it was during the winter. We would sit at the bar and have dirty martinis. Extra dirty, which just means extra olive juice. Uh, once the weather started getting warmer, he suggested a summer drink. The drink dates back to World War One, and in its early form, it was created in 1915 at the New York Bar in Paris, and later at Harry's New York Bar. Uh, it was said to have such a kick that it felt like being shelled with a powerful French 75-millimeter field gun. French 75 was popularized by... The Stork Club in New York City, which is a very exclusive nightclub in Manhattan, and it was featured in the movie Casablanca. So how do we make a French 75? In a cocktail shaker, you add two ounces of dry Bombay gin, one teaspoon of superfine sugar, half an ounce of lemon juice, shake well over cracked ice, strain into a champagne glass, half full, and top it off with champagne. And that's it. That sounds delicious. Thank you for hanging with us. For a list of the books, films, references mentioned in this episode, hop onto our site, GatsbyFridays.com. You can also find the recipe for French 75 on our website. For extras, or if you want to leave a comment, suggest a show topic, get us on our site. Or on Instagram, follow us at Gatsby Fridays. Stay with us. On our next episode, we will discuss networking, expectations, who you meet, and the takeaways. This, this is Gatsby, Gatsby Fridays. Fridays.